This podcast is brought to you by public.com, the investing social network. Public is a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. There are more than a few investing apps out there, but here's what's different about public. Social features that allow people to share and discover new ideas. The app also supports responsible investing habits, so they don't encourage day trading, nor do they offer margin accounts or options. Features like safety labels on potentially risky stocks give members more complete context. Public has also recently opted out of payment for order flow, so they don't sell your trades to third parties. Public's community is made up of 40% women and 45% people of color, so its members come from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life. Conversations on public span deep dives into new IPOs, as well as general insights on financial wellness and category trends. You can even use group chats to build investing clubs with your friends. Head over to public.com to sign up and start with a free slice of stock. Then you can get going with as little as $1, and if you're looking to transfer your portfolio over from another brokerage, they'll even cover the fees for accounts valued at over $150. Valid for only U.S. residents 18 years and older and subject to account approval. For more information, see public.com disclosures. Hey everyone, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today, where we talk about all things FinTech. And today I am joined in person, which you can't tell on here, but I am, I promise, with my co-founder Ian Carr. And we're gonna do a recap of the first quarter of 2021. We're already here, Ian. This is crazy. It's I honestly can't believe it. What's up? I am IRL. This is uh this is pretty crazy. This um, is the first time since uh Q1 of 2020, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's been over a year since we mm-hmm. hung out in person. This is but, crazy. Uh, yeah. And then she's moving to Austin probably tomorrow. So uh, <laughs> so another year, we'll have to put it, it's like a yearly thing that we're trying to do actually. Yeah, there we go. At least once a year we have to meet up. That's that's the prerequisite. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Q1's already here, already over pretty much. And uh, yeah, I feel like, a, I mean, crazy start to the year, Julie. I mean, I don't even know where to start. Where, it where, really where was. Let's do, you've been obsessed with SPACs. Let's start with SPACs. I love SPACs. I mean, I think they're pretty interesting as a vehicle, but yeah, SPACs were blowing up this year. Um, SoFi, uh, you know, a lot of other companies have gone public. Moneylion is planning on going public through a SPAC. I mean, SPACs are not only becoming a vehicle to uh, take a private company public for fintech companies, but the larger tech industry as well. I mean, Oscar Health is looking at a SPAC. Um, you know, companies uh, in the greater tech industry have uh, been really interested in this. And, you know, I think from my perspective, I think it's a really interesting way of cutting out middlemen and taking and taking a company public for, you know, in an interesting way where you can, you know, uh, you know, share information like uh, forward looking projections and talk about things like what the potential of a company is and giving more of a outlook around growth rather than like, you know, uh, traditional IPO metrics, if that makes sense. Yeah, now, totally. Yeah, and I'm making a bull case for it. Obviously, there are some downsides, right? Uh, you can, in theory, take bad, like bad, shitty companies public and things like that via SPACs. You know, I, you know, folks that I've spoken to, I actually on on over the weekend was talking to someone who's doing a SPAC, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. we were chat. That's how I spend my weekends, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and you know, it's like 
if you do take a shitty company public VS back, like the public markets will, you know, sort itself out. I think like, you know, overall making it easier for companies and investors to get liquidity is an interesting avenue and employees more specifically. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, um, you know, seeing that play out in tech and fintech has been really interesting this quarter. Yeah. And for me, I think the biggest concern I would have just moving forward, if I was someone that was launching a SPAC is just how regulators are looking more closely at it, given all these celebrities that are starting to back them. So what, uh, Jay-Z has a SPAC, A-Rod has a SPAC, all these people Odell, have SPAC. Odell Beckham Jr. I, <laughs> I don't know if I can curse that aggressively, but I love Odell. So I'm really happy he did a SPAC with, uh, Thrive Capital. That's sick. I ah, mean, like, I didn't know that one. But it's it's interesting because I feel like these vehicles definitely have a purpose. One of the newsletters I did a few weeks ago was just about how someone like a Stripe shouldn't still be private. They should have gone public via a SPAC during their Series C, Series D. And that really should be the new way for a lot of companies to go public since what I think Chamath always preaches that we used to have 5,000 publicly traded companies and now we have like 1,000. And it's because companies are opting to stay private for so much longer because there's so much venture capital money out there. And it also would give retail investors like myself the chance to get in on someone like a Stripe when they're a five or $10 billion valuation versus the hundred plus valuation that they have today. Yeah. The SPAC actually, I mean, I think what SoFi is doing, right? They announced that they're going to merge, but they haven't actually executed it yet. So people can buy that stock and uh, I think it's called IPOE and you can just go on and uh, on Robinhood and buy it. I, I think I have like $20 worth. Um, and like it's, you know, at a very cheap price because it's not actually SoFi trading. It's just the, the intention of executing this merger, uh, you know, and it's a really interesting vehicle. I think, you know, making, I mean, for me, someone who's, you know, worked uh, in product around democratizing, uh, you know, equity trading and things like that, like, I am a very firm believer of making it easier for people to invest their wealth into companies that they believe in. And, you know, I think the celebrity thing you mentioned is really interesting, right? Like, you know, we saw that with ICOs when they when they first popped up, like celebrity endorsements and things like that were really a way to get a lot of attention, pump up the ICO price. And then, you know, people, obviously there wasn't much value created there, right? I think with these kind of companies, you know, and especially if you find the right actual investment and the investment part and the right team behind it, a celebrity can just give you a lot of marketing leverage and a lot of, you know, uh, really quick and easy like, distribution and develop. Like, like these people have massive audiences. A-Rod is a, A-Rod and J-Lo are huge uh, personalities. Like, if you have a company that's going public and especially if it's a consumer one or one that fits their brand, you know, getting uh, getting a celebrity on board does somewhat make sense. I mean, for me, the biggest indicator here is the financial advisors and the, and the team itself behind the SPAC rather than the celebrity in front of it. Yeah. Well, a company that has not gone public via a SPAC and went via a traditional IPO uh, was Max Levchin's Affirm, one of the bigger buy now, pay later companies. And like many other IPOs that have happened both inside fintech and outside of fintech, it saw a really good first few days of trading. It popped right at the IPO. Its valuation got up to 20 something billion. Now it's back down to like 18, 19, still a very healthy valuation. One of the biggest impacts we've seen from it so far, though, is that Klarna, a company in Europe that is buy now, pay later, saw a huge jump in their recent funding round because of it. I think they're what, 30 something billion now valuation because they're they're much bigger than Affirm, which surprised me. Before I started diving into this space leading up to the Affirm IPO, I had no idea how much bigger Klarna actually was. 
Yeah, I mean, Klarna is huge, and I think it. I think it's a testament to the market itself, right? Like, buy now, pay later is a is a big market already, and one that's growing over time. I mean, uh, there's a payment expert that uh, I read a lot. Uh, his name's Tom Noyes. He's a really great blog, and uh, he wrote a lot about. Uh, recently about like how this buy now pay later like a lot of folks in the banking industry wrote it off at first like they're like you know nothing's gonna replace credit cards it doesn't actually solve a user problem but i think over time it what we realize that it does like i think for me and a lot of other folks and you know people who are under 35 you know buy now pay later is a is a very interesting mechanism to fund a purchase that i want without having to really ding my credit or or you know funding it through other vehicles that i don't really feel comfortable with right um, and so I'm pretty bullish on the whole sector overall. I think uh, the valuations between a, a firm and Klarna, like, you know, I think it's it's interesting, right? It's like a lot like payments. There are all these massive, massive payments companies. I think the same we might see in Buy Now Pay Later too. Yeah, you know, something that happened yesterday to me actually is I have one of those Amazon Visa reward cards mm-hmm. or whatever where you get 5% cash back whenever you buy anything on Amazon. And obviously I buy a lot of things on Amazon. <laughs> so I have it. And yesterday when I was checking out, there was an offer at the checkout to pay via Buy Now Pay Later on that card. 0% APR pay that I think it was $80 total of a purchase pay over four payments instead of one. I've never seen that before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I have a question for you. There are all these like, different mechanisms and different like options now. I mean, the payment, like f- the screen is getting cluttered. I see like mm-hmm. every time I go to this screen, like I see 15 different options. Like, how do you think that's going to play out with like, not just like uh, these buy now pay later options, but also like, you know, fast and like Stripe checkout and all these other options around like just you know, reducing friction around checkout itself too. Yeah. So there's two things I think will go on here. One, I think that companies like Affirm, PayPal, Klarna, whoever wants to be on that checkout, it's going to be a little bit of a bidding war with the merchants to get on there. Like who can offer the merchant the better deal? Who's going to convert more of their customers? Who's going to make the checkout process easiest for their users? Second thing I think could happen, and this is a more farther down the line is I think you could almost use AI to know, Hey, Ian does not use buy now, pay later, or he does use buy now, pay later and put those options on there based on what your AI already knows about you. If I never use a credit card and I always use my PayPal account, then my credit card options won't really pop up. It's just going to be like the two or three top choices that I typically use. And that's it. But yeah, it, it'll, it'll be a really interesting thing to follow. I think, you know, Q1 was really good for buy now, pay later. I'm interested to see how Q2 and Q3 goes. Yeah, dynamically placing payment methods is a pretty good idea. I mean, I, I think that's something that a lot of merchants would be like find a lot of that value in. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good idea. If anyone does it, please let us know. <laughs> we will talk Ian about at it. FintechToday.co. And I am Julie at <laughs> FintechToday.co in case you couldn't guess. Uh, speaking of payments though, Stripe, another big one. There'd been this rumored massive round for Stripe. And as I mentioned in our first story here, they're now valued at what, 90, $100 billion? It's, it's just crazy how quickly this company has grown. And I think a lot of it was because you look at other payments companies like PayPal, Square, Visa, et cetera, and their valuations skyrocket over the pandemic because everyone's buying so many things online. They're not paying in cash anymore. They're using their credit or debit cards. Um, and 
not without going too far down a rabbit hole, when you buy things online, these companies typically make a little bit more money off the merchant than if you're doing a point of sale because there's a higher chance of fraud online. So they can charge a little bit more for that. But Ian, are you, would you buy shares of Stripe on the secondary at $100 billion? I would buy it at whatever. I mean, like I would buy it at whatever price. I mean, I'm, that's a joke, but like, actually, like, yeah, I think a hundred billion, I think 150 probably. Right. Like, I mean, I wanted to, I, I was just pulling up like who invested in this round. Cause I always find that really interesting. Mm-hmm. Sequoia, obviously, um, they're the biggest outside shareholder in Stripe from what I understand. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Ireland's national treasury, uh, invested, which is pretty cool. The founders are from Ireland. Um, and, uh, yeah, th- I think, you know, the round is really big and I think it's always really interesting to see how they think about, you know, who they bring onto their cap table and things like that. I mean, getting uh, investors from, you know, international investors is always a great sign around international growth. And mm-hmm. I think Stripe's definitely made a lot of steps towards that. I think you, this quarter they uh, announced an acquisition around Paystack, um, uh, which is an African fintech uh, uh, payments company. Uh, I think Julie recently wrote about African fintech payments blowing up. I think that there's a lot of international expansion opportunities for Stripe. Uh, if you think about payments as an ecosystem abroad, it's even more awful than it is in the U.S. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of e-commerce is is becoming more and more popular in uh, developing countries too. So, developing the payment infrastructure is becoming super important. I think there's a ton of growth for Stripe. I think there's a ton of growth for a lot of payments companies. Uh, inter- for Stripe specifically, I think international is going to be the big vector. Yep, I think so too. I think that, um, you know, I remember talking to executives at Stripe even like three or four years ago, and they mentioned just how big international could be for them. And it's been fascinating to see how they've expanded, whether it be growing themselves or making acquisitions like Paystack. I think places like India, Africa, Asia will all be really big markets for them in the future. Yeah. And since we're on the topic, I think a lot of, I think this other, this quarter, the other big announcements from Stripe were uh, around Treasury, right? Uh, Their um, initiative with Goldman around and enabling things like escrow and uh, other, you know, banking as a service, like uh, services around card issuing thing and things like that. I think, you know, from a, from a strategic perspective, it was such a great partnership. I think a lot of people, you know, misunderstood it, right? I think a lot of people, folks outside the, the fintech industry were, you know, uh, that I was hearing of through the grapevine were like, oh, this is competitive with XYZ early stage startup. And I'm just sitting like, no, it's not. You know, I think uh, you know a lot of a lot of companies are going to go to Stripe for their own purposes. Uh, you know, shop, but like I think for for Stripe, it's really more about enabling financial services for you know a wide array of their customers. Companies like Shopify, their needs are growing dramatically around uh, financial services for their customers. If you're a platform that's using Stripe and you want to start doing bank accounts for your customers, or if you want to you know start uh, you know enabling different kind of payments and things like that, like. Uh, you know, Stripe adding that sort of functionality, making it easier for those kind of uh, platforms to enable that is be, is really important. So I'm really excited to see how Stripe Treasury expands and uh, evolves over time. I think, you know, quite frankly, it's going to, you know, not, not be what we expect. Uh, but uh, I think it'll be a really uh, important development for the ecosystem over, over the next couple of years. Yeah. One thing I wonder if Stripe will start doing Bitcoin, because another topic that we cannot ignore for Q1 is that Bitcoin went from just under 30,000 to close out 2020 to a record high of 60 some thousand. It's now trading at what, around 58,000. So still really close to those record highs. And even today I did a story about how Visa is getting more into crypto. 
uh, I think the rest of the year is really going to be fascinating for for Bitcoin. I own like five hundred dollars worth of it, so it's a very small amount. Ian, do you own any Bitcoin or no? Yeah, I have like <laughs> I have like like five hundred thousand dollars in it. I mean, like I I kind of just treat it as like a safe asset, you know, just like this. This I just have my money in it and it grows and grows. I'm up like thirty percent. It's like. I don't know when to take out, take it out. I think like that's the big issue for me. But yeah, I mean, I think Bitcoin as an asset class is fascinating. I've I think what's super interesting is you know the financialization of crypto uh, that's been going on. Companies like BlockFi um, have been really interesting in enabling a lot of like you know uh, lending and things like that, and uh, a lot of uh, really high APYs for customers that want to uh, hold their money in Bitcoin but get like you know. Uh, but lend on top of it and things like that or borrow on top of it. One Um, thing that's a struggle for me, though, is that so my moving company allows you to pay in Bitcoin. But mm -hmm. if I were to actually do that, that would be a taxable event. And I would have to take that to my account at the end of the year. That's a pain in the I don't want to do that. Yeah, the taxable event situation is really interesting. There's a company that raised a lot of money this quarter called Taxbit um, uh, that uh, is is trying to solve uh, taxes for crypto. But in general, I think uh, crypto is the commerce vehicle is pretty interesting. I think in figuring that out is going to be really complicated, but uh, especially from a regulatory perspective. But it seems like it's just low hanging fruit. I mean, like it just seems like a natural sort of evolution at this point. I think the question was always like, what is Bitcoin? Is it a payment method or is it an asset class? And I think what is a what seems to be the case is that the asset has grown so much that it's being forced to evolve into a payment method because there's so much asset and assets tied up into it, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree. And obviously, another big event that will happen in the Bitcoin space is that during Q1, Coinbase announced that it was going to do a direct listing. And within the next month or so, it should actually go public. And it's looking to trade right around, what, $100 billion. So it'll be really fascinating to see what happens with that. A lot of it will also depend on what the price of Bitcoin does, because that makes a big difference in the number of transactions that are happening. And that's how Coinbase makes a lot of its money as well as the custodial services. You'd think that a lot of these big names are using them to store and secure their Bitcoin, but if all of a sudden the interest dies down, then they're not going to need someone to store that anymore. Yeah, I think that's another area too. And I think, uh, and I mean, Coinbase is uh, uh, Mario at the Generalist, uh, and uh, he runs this thing called S One Club that I took a part of uh, uh, for Coinbase, and it was really interesting to kind of understand like how their businesses evolved from when I was a journalist covering them, like I don't remember four or five years ago or something. Um, but like, yeah, back then they were just like a wallet and like a way to buy crypto. Now they've expanded into institutional, which I, I'm really interested in. I think like as crypto, you know evolves and I think there are more frankly more use cases out of it um, I think more institutions are going to get more interested in it and I think things like an institutional product might be a really powerful way for uh, coinbase to you know boost their revenue um, yeah I mean I think overall I think there's a lot of different uh, potential different potential ways they can expand. But man, their core business is still ripping. I mean, it's really, really strong. And I think there's a lot of growth just there already. So, you know, a uh, hundred bill for Coinbase. I mean, you know, I wonder in like a, in like three years, we're going to be talking about like, oh, that's a discount, you know? Yeah, might be. It depends on what Bitcoin does. If Bitcoin goes to the moon, then Coinbase certainly is too. 
Speaking of Bitcoin, a company that lets you trade Bitcoin but is not as well known for it as what Coinbase is, SoFi had a really big quarter. They they announced that they're going public via a SPAC, and just a week or two ago, they announced that they are buying a bank as well, which I find fascinating because they've announced in the past that they've been applying for charters and whatnot, and it's it hasn't happened yet. So now they're going this route, and I find it fascinating for a business that started out as a student lender and now has wealth management, crypto trading, ETF stock trading, uh, your checking and savings, you got a whole slew of products. They're, they're a challenger bank. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the first stories uh, that I think Julie and I wrote for FTT together was around the Galileo acquisition. Uh, and, you know, back then I was thinking like it did make sense for SoFi to eventually go around and uh, and either a buy or, or, you know, file to uh, apply for a charter just because you have a consumer business, you have the infrastructure business, the consumer business sells uh, digitally enabled financial products to consumers. The infrastructure business enables that for not just SoFi, but other other uh, players in the field as well. You know, after a certain point, you realize we're doing all this work and we're giving all these partner banks like a ton of BIPs, you know, and it's like, why not just, you know, uh, absorb one or become one on our own? Yes, the regulatory burden and, you know, the amount of compliance work and stuff like that is a lot, but you're already doing lending. You're already doing, you know, equity trading. You're already doing Bitcoin trading. You're doing a, you're already very regulated. You know, the, the becoming a bank nowadays is, uh, is becoming a really interesting, like sort of regulatory mode that, uh, companies can kind of put the, between themselves and, uh, you know, early stage startups that are just getting off the ground. Um, you know, if you think about the market overall, it's becoming easier and easier to, uh, start a fintech company. Now it's not as easy as everyone says, it doesn't take the snap of the fingers, but, uh, you know, it's because it's become very democratized. So developing regulatory modes and capital modes and things like that for, for later stage companies like SoFi, um, is going to be really important. And I, uh, I'm super, I'm super interested to see how they expand, uh, you know, upon that. Um, the, the interesting thing is I tweeted about sort of buying versus uh, building a bank. And, uh, and from what I can tell, it might, neither, neither sounds too great. <laughs> you either have to build everything yourself or you have to buy it and then sort of rip out all the old tech that banks use and like, you know, no one really wants to deal with that. So, you know, it seems like there are going to be some integration, you know, uh, hurdles and things like that, like any sort of acquisition. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think, you know, Square went a different route and sort of applied on their own. I think we've seen uh, Vero do the same. I think it'll be interesting to see sort of how companies sort of, of you know, face this regulatory barrier, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't see other challenger banks doing this right away. I think, like you mentioned, it made more sense for SoFi because they have such a big lending business. Someone like a Chime for, or a Current, it doesn't make sense for them to do it in the near future just because they, they don't really lend much at all at this point. So it'll be fascinating to see uh, the trend that happens there. And anyone listening to this podcast probably can guess what our final topic is. It's the Robin Hood GameStop hearings. In case you missed it, there was some really crazy stock trading from people on Reddit that were pumping up GameStop to squeeze the short selling hedge funds that were in there. And it got so crazy that Robinhood had to shut down trading in those stocks and a few others. There were hearings on Capitol Hill. And so that I'm just like listening to you summarize <laughs> it. And it's just fucking bizarre, right? It's just like. These uh, every a bunch of people on a Reddit forum were like wanted to get back at these short sellers so that it really 
fucked up the entire like stock market for a fucking week. That's bizarre. Sorry, I curse a lot. I don't know if anyone knows. <laughs> uh, I guess that's out of the bag now. But yeah, just crazy to think about. Like, what a what a bizarre scenario. Right? It was crazy. And in the midst of all of this, they're also going public now too. Last week, it they uh, announced that they have confidentially filed an S one. So it's it's not clear if they're doing a direct listing or an IPO, but they will go public and. You know, now you'll be able to trade shares of Robinhood on these companies unless maybe short sellers try to squeeze them and then Reddit traders go the other way and they have to shut down trading in their own stock because of margin calls. I have no idea what's going to happen with Robin Robinhood. I tweeted this, but I mean, like, you never really want to shoot your casino in the foot. Like, you know, I mean, like, if, I'm a, if I'm a Robinhood trader, I want Robinhood to operate as efficiently as possible so I can keep gambling pretty much. But uh, and I'm speaking on like as a very personal user here. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the IPO. I think the actual vehicle itself is going to be interesting. I don't think they're, I don't really think it makes sense for them to go public through a traditional method only because I don't think they need much capital. I think I think a direct listing makes sense uh, for context because of all this sort of controversy, all this sort of hoopla around like the GameStop issue. They had to raise an emergency bridge round of like $3.4 billion dollars. Um, in a in a convertible note, so they did get a big capital injection recently. Uh, so um, you know, my gut says that they'll probably pursue a direct listing where you don't take capital on. But uh, it'll be interesting to see which avenue they pursue too. Yeah, and just for a little bit of context on the bridge round too, they had to do that because they got a call from regulators that night saying that they had to have more money on hand in order to cover these traders on their platform that were making trades in GameStop, AMC, and a couple other stocks there. So that that was honestly a flaw in their business model, in my view, that they would have to do like that's more money than they've raised in their entire yeah. history before. And they well, it's it's a flaw in the business model, but it's also such a weird edge case, right? Like when you're de- when you're developing the vision of a company and you're raising, let's say, like a Series C, Series D, you don't predict that like you know everyone's going to be addicted to gambling because they're all sitting in their house and then they all realize and they all want to like you know screw over hedge funds. Like it's such a weird edge case. It's very very hard to predict this sort of stuff, and I think. What's interesting is that it actually, if you you know zoom out and like analyze the theory behind it, it's like if you democratize financial services and you like with other industries too, you democratizing like you know information with Facebook and information sharing, like you don't really know the repercussions and what this ha- what happens when you put like all these tools into the hands of humans, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know putting not guardrails but like you know thing like measures and things like that to enable the right sort of behaviors is something that a lot of founders and product fo- folks should really consider too. Yeah, I agree. And then the only other thing on Robinhood that I would know is that I'm very interested to, interested to see just what their financials look like once all of those are out. Like how often just trader demographics and everything too. How often are people trading? What kind of fees are they getting? How much are they making per customer? Like how long have they been profitable? All that kind of stuff. I feel will just be fascinating to finally be able to truly compare them to some of the other brokerages in the industry. Yeah, because it's a very unique business, right? I mean, like. They- they completely upended the industry's business model around zero fee. They've probably they've never made revenue off fees, so that's very very unlike other other folks in the space. So I think uh, it'll be really interesting to analyze their business model as a proxy for like the future of sort of you know trading and like you know how we can kind of think about different kind of businesses uh, uh, based on Robinhood. 
Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ian. This was fun to do in person. Yeah, this was a blast. We <laughs> um, got to do it once a year, I guess. Yes, exactly, exactly. You can come visit me in Austin. We'll do we'll do it one at Franklin's Barbecue. Yeah, How's that, that works. <laughs> uh, but that is it for today's episode of Tux Time. Thank you for joining us. I'll see you again next time.